Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am speaking with Bensei Nene. Bensei is a professor of philosophy uh, at the University of Antwerp. And he is uh, much interested in philosophy of mind, philosophy of biology and aesthetics, and he's widely published in the scientific journals. He's written a handful of books, including the most recent, Mental Imagery, Philosophy, Psychology, Neuroscience, and uh, that's what we talk about in this conversation. Um, I wanted to get him on because I wanted to talk about these ideas of perception, and uh, mental imagery is not the same, but is connected with uh, perception, so I was very excited about that. We start by talking about what is mental imagery and how it's defined and what it is and what it is not. We talk about um, representations a lot in the conversation. We talk about how mental imagery is psychological um, and what, what that means. Um, we talk about mental imagery as being an unconscious process. We talk about predictive processing, the role of the body, multimodal, multisensory dimensions, uh, we talk about disorders of mental imagery. Uh, we have a we have a, a fun bit in there about EMDR, which was I really enjoyed that part of the conversation as well. Talk about some of the metaphysical questions of mental imagery. Uh, talk about a phenomenology of perception, uh, mental imagery in art and the aesthetics, and uh, many other topics. Um, again, this was a, a a really fun conversation, and it, and it feels like a conversation, less of an interview of sorts, and. Uh, he was absolutely wonderful, um, super brilliant, super sharp, and just super engaging. And I, I really enjoyed the the conversation that uh, that we had. Uh, as always, you can find uh, this conversation, all of the conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. Uh, subscribe there, share widely, and uh, also on YouTube as well. Same thing, Converging Dialogues. And now uh, I bring you Bensei Nene. I'm here with Bense Nane. Bense, thank you so much for coming on the uh, podcast. I'm looking forward to uh, talking with you. Um, so you've uh, you've written a uh, a really wonderful book. I know it's not your first book, and you've written a handful of things. Uh, the book is called Mental Imagery: Philosophy, Psychology, and Neuroscience. Mm -hmm. uh, so we'll we'll talk all about that before we get to uh, to the book. Why don't you just tell folks just a snapshot of. Uh, who you are, uh, what your professional academic background is, and uh, what you're currently up to. So, yeah. So I was born in Hungary. I studied in England and the U.S., where I did my PhD. Uh, and then I started working in the U.S. And then I uh, worked in Canada and then in the U.K. And now I'm in Belgium. And uh, I'm uh, my main uh, research is on philosophy of mind, philosophy of perception, and cognitive science. And yeah, I just brought this book, which I guess, which is what we're going to talk about, the mental imagery, which I've been working on for a very long time, mm. and uh, it's finally done. So I'm very happy about that. Mm. Yeah, it's just wonderful. It's a uh, it's pretty wide spanning. I mean, the the subtitle there is pretty accurate. There's a lot of philosophy in there. There's neuroscience. There's little phenomenology and perception and there's so many different things in there and it's it's well organized i found it really easy to read in some ways in terms of like the flow of it and how it is so you can talk a little bit if you want about how the you know the process of the book but uh, i guess most importantly maybe talk about 
what is mental imagery and uh, how we define it and how does it look in various aspects of life? It seems like it's a pretty key variable for many things for you. Sure, but maybe first I want to say something about just you know you you mentioned that it's about it's about philosophy, it's psychology, and neuroscience. So I I really the way I do philosophy is is by trying to use any kind of information we have about the mind to try to understand the mind. So so uh, I don't think that philosophy has a privileged place in understanding the mind. Psychologists have been doing that for a long time. Neuroscientists. Not such a long time, but very efficiently in the last uh, couple of decades. So I, I, what I want to do is to really try to kind of unite uh, the information we have from philosophy, psychology, and, and, and neuroscience. In general, that's what I'm trying to do when I'm trying to uh, write about various mental phenomena. And this is exactly what I was trying to do in, in this book. And uh, so kind of bringing in neuroscience and psychology and philosophy is on the one hand it's tricky right because then you have to explain all these concepts mm-hmm. because you know very few readers will have backgrounds and all these three things on the other hand given that i will have to explain um, i have explained uh, all the all the basic concepts in philosophy and psychology and neuroscience you can read this book even if you have no background in any of those mm-hmm. or if you have, don't, don't have any background in one or the other or any of them so uh, it should be I'm trying to, I wrote this book in a way that it does not somehow presuppose some kind of familiarity with any of the traditions. Mm. So you, you asked me what's mental imagery? Yeah. So um, if, you, if you close your eyes and visualize an apple, um, you do that. Yeah, got it. There you go. Uh, then then uh, that's mental imagery. That's going to be one, one form in which you, you, you have mental imagery. Uh, not everyone will experience something. So there's this uh, relatively recent phenomenon called aphantasia. Mm. If you close your eyes and try to visualize an apple, nothing comes up. Mm. And there's apparently 5 to 8% of the population, they have aphantasia. So for them, that's probably not going to be a very helpful uh, intro to mental imagery. But I but I, I use the term in a much broader sense. So So I want to say that when you close your eyes and visualize an apple, that will count as mental imagery, but lots of other things will count as mental imagery as well. So mm-hmm. the way I define mental imagery is that it's a kind of perceptual representation. Mm-hmm. It's a rep- perceptual representation that's not directly triggered by the sensory input. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question I have on this is kind of in the, the inverse. So what isn't mental imagery? If mental imagery is in many things, and if I can close my eyes and I can think about whatever my priors are about, you know, when I close my eyes and think of an apple, I think of, uh, you know, just kind of a red apple and that's just kind of, it's just sitting in space, you know, whatever, but it might be different for other people. They might think of a tree and apples on it or whatever, but mm-hmm. what is not, I guess, included in mental imagery. Good. So, um, so, so the way this book is structured is that I, I'm going through all these mental phenomena and I try to kind of show that mental imagery plays a role in, in most of them, so there's uh, I start with mental imagery itself, and then I talk about perception, the role the, the role mental imagery plays in perception, which I argue is very significant. And and so so I go through all these phenomena, and I and I argue that well, mental imagery just plays a huge role in all of these things. And then in the I, I wrote a kind of an afterward, like an epilogue, where I, I I say that well, this must be a really frustrating read for the for for the reader that just go through everything like everything that happens in the mind and i and i make the point that oh hey it's all just mental imagery mm-hmm. and uh and so so i asked so what is not mental imagery but i think that there's a lot obviously there's a lot in the, in the human mind that's not mental imagery so what i 
called mental imagery. And I'm not, this is not my idea. I'm following the kind of psychological neuroscientific consensus on this. So mental imagery is a very specific kind of perceptual representation. So in the, uh, in the human mind, uh, there's a lot of different kinds of representations. There's clearly non-perceptual representations. There's a lot of non-representations, right? Like there's non-representational retinal processing that's in the mind and, and it's part of our mental apparatus, but that's not a perceptual representation at all. So that's not going to count. There's not a representation at all. There's going to be non-perceptual representations like beliefs or uh, convictions. That's also not going to count, any, not even remotely mental imagery, because it's not even not any kind of perceptual representation. But not even all perceptual representations are going to count. Only those perceptual representations are going to count as mental imagery that are not directly triggered by the sensory input. Mm. So, um, first of all, we have to focus, we have to kind of zero in on the representations that we have in our mind. From that category, the perceptual representations, the representation in our perceptual system. And from that category, those perceptual representations that are not somehow directly triggered by the sensory input. Mm. Those are going to be mental image. So I'm wondering here, if I can't find something in my mind's eye, if you will, if I can't, if yeah. I can't create an image of something, yeah. does that mean, I don't want to necessarily make a kind of an empirical statement, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, right? I mean, it can still exist even if I can't have a mental image of it or maybe not <laughs> but what do we do in that scenario where if we're in a novel situation or if we're having a novel interaction let's say for, for the first time for the person then and we can't access anything is it then we're just doing association kinds of things of like well this is something similar i think to what this is and so but are we trying to develop a new picture you know in those novel experiences or i guess how does it kind of um how does it generate if we haven't had any of those kind of novel experiences? Can you give me an example, an example of what you mind? Yeah, so like I've never been to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what it looks like uh, experientially. So I know what I've seen. I can look in pictures online or in a book or in films or whatever. But I don't know. So if you were telling me to talk about a specific flower or a specific tree or a specific whatever that's unique to Vietnam, I can't get an image of that in my mind because I haven't had the experience of it. That's one example. I think the other things that you discuss are also some of those examples. Like, you know, if you ask someone what's love, yeah, you, know, you can't, you know, you, people aren't going to get an image of that. So I guess in both of those ways, how do we come to understanding with those two kind of categorical uh, differences? Good, good. So, um, so first of all, yeah, there's lots of things that you're not really in a position to have an accurate mental imagery of because you've never seen it or you don't have a very good description of. That's that's a, that's your question, right? Mm -hmm. But I think in terms of Vietnam, I've never been to Vietnam either. Uh, I've been to some neighboring countries, but I I have a if I if I if you ask me to have conjure up mental imagery of Vietnam, I could, I could do something right. Mm -hmm. Uh, on the basis of, uh, the things that I've seen in Cambodia and in Thailand, but also the, the films that I saw about Vietnam and the pictures I saw about Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So those are, those, those can be, but I mean, is that reliable? Pro probably not. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, you know, neither are, neither is my memory of Cambodia reliable. Um, mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't be too worried about that. 
Well, yeah. So, uh, and also, I mean, one one interesting thing about the human mind is to be very good at generating new representations, very much, uh, and that very much includes new mental, new kind of new instances of mental imagery. So, uh, if I um, so the unicorns don't exist, right? I have no chance of uh, ever seeing a unicorn, but I can have, I can form even if I've never seen a, a unicorn picture before. If you tell me that unicorn is a horse that has one horn on mm-hmm. its forehead, then I can I can visualize that. Mm-hmm. So that's a very mental image is a really nice uh, kind of representation that uh, th- that at least uh, in some cases of this productivity of the human mind it works very well for mental imagery, which is kind of weird because the, the productivity of the human mind is all, often has been taken to be a sign that uh, that the human mind is full of propositional attitudes, like beliefs that are kind of linguistically or syntactically structured. And mental imagery is not syntactically structured. Nonetheless, it's very good at this kind of mm. combination or combinational thing. I'll come to memory and perception in a minute, but you, sure. you've mentioned a bunch of times that, well, one thing, you make this statement that mental imagery is a psychological phenomenon. You, you say how it's a, per, a perceptual re- representation not triggered by sensory input. Yeah. So I guess how is it a psychological phenomenon? And, and I guess how is mental imagery different than even I just use it, right? The mind's eye, images, visualizing. How is it different, I guess? Um, so it's a psychological phenomenon in the sense that it's uh, happening in our head. But uh, maybe what you have in mind is that I'm using the psychological definition. So a uh, philosopher, so, so, so I want to move away from kind of trusting our introspective evidence on mental imagery. Mm-hmm. One, um, you know, 50 years ago, when people were writing about things like mental imagery, they were closing their eyes, visualizing an apple, and then writing about the experiences they had. Mm-hmm. And then they, uh, and I don't think that's a very good good idea to do that. Uh, and I don't think that's uh, it's a very good idea to do philosophy on, on the basis of introspection, uh, partly because we have much better data points from the empirical sciences. And partly because we know that introspection is incredibly unreliable. Mm. We're in, we're very wrong about the, the vast majority of the things that we introspect. Mm. And this is especially dangerous. This game is especially dangerous when it comes to mental imagery because of the stuff that we talked about already, uh, this, this big, huge interpersonal variations between different people, how strong or how vivid their imagery is. So again, some part of the population, they just report no conscious imagery whatsoever. They say, uh, I just don't, you know, I close my eyes and visualize an apple and there's no image comes up. So that is a very different kind of uh, introspective report from the, so these these people are called aphantasia subjects. And the opposite end of the spectrum is superphantasia, hyperphantasia, hyperphantasia, sorry, hyperphantasia, uh, where they have incredibly vivid mental imagery. So much so that sometimes they, uh, they imagine doing something and then they, uh, like five minutes later, they actually think that they did that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, uh, so you know, I, I uh, think that oh shit, I, I should take out the garbage. Uh, and I imagine myself taking out the garbage, and and you know, half an hour later, my wife asked me, "So, did you take out the garbage?" <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, I didn't. I just imagined it. So that's hyperphantasia, which mm-hmm. is very vivid imagery, and mm-hmm. aphantasia, when there's no vividness whatsoever, there's no imagery, no no conscious imagery whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So most of us are somewhere in between, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But 
that kind of shows you that it's a very bad idea to follow your introspective evidence when it comes to mental imagery, because if someone has aphantasia, they're going to have a very different theory than someone who has hyperphantasia. So I guess the question I have here is, is what, how do we, it is dependent on different folks, you know, have different, you know, histories and backgrounds, but you make the claim that it's much of mental imagery is this unconscious mm. and on involuntary and all the senses can kind of be involved. So, you know, yeah. taste, touch, you know, smell. So it's not just actual visual images. So I, you can tell me if you want to go down this road or not, but many people will talk about, you know, the Bayesian brain. They'll talk about Bayesian priors and we don't know where those originate from necessarily. If that's connected here, you can explain that. But I guess if it is unconscious, if mental imagery is unconscious and it is sort of involuntary, how do we know how these things are working as a kind of, um, I guess you can say kind of a foundational way of doing it? If it's different for you, right? If you see the apple in your, in your mind's eye in the mental imagery piece of it differently than I do, how can we know what is conceptually uh, kind of a baseline or I don't want to, I'm, I guess I'm kind of looking for a universal, but not really. How can we know about the idea and then also have variance with how different people will see it if it's involuntary and unconscious? Good, good, good. So uh, I think that's a very important question. And that's exactly why uh, I think we should use the term mental imagery in a, in a way that's a publicly observable. So it's not it's not based on first personal report that I say that oh I have mental imagery oh I don't have mental imagery because you might be wrong because you might have unconscious mental imagery so why do I go on about unconscious mental imagery or why am I, why do I think that that's a big thing uh, well because we know that perception can be conscious or unconscious right there's a lot of uh, really pretty solid evidence that uh, unconscious priming works so if uh, during this little YouTube video uh, you you flash a, a an image of of a cat. Uh, very briefly, so that uh, your viewers are not going to be able to, uh, to they, they have no idea that this happened. It's still going to influence your behavior. You're going to be quicker at recognizing cats after or afterwards, for example. So unconscious perception is a thing. And um, remember that mental imagery is just a form of perceptual representation. So if uh, sensory stimulation-driven perceptual representations can be unconscious, then why couldn't mental imagery, which is perceptual representation that's not triggered directly by the sensory input could not be unconscious. Mm -hmm. So I think that's important to acknowledge that. So, so it, or, or to think of mental imagery as this kind of category that's not based on this kind of first personal, uh, you know, uh, in, introspective report. And as every kind of scientific category, it should be publicly observable. Mm -hmm. And and there's a there's a very you know, we know a lot about visual system at this point, and we can tell when the visual system, especially the early cortices. Uh, have represent something, and uh, so if I can, you know, if I put you in a scanner and I ask you to visualize an apple, you tell me that oh yeah, I just visualized an apple, but I can check mm -hmm. if nothing shows up in your primary visual cortex or or maybe maybe some other other parts of visual cortex, then you are just lying. Um, you you did not visualize an apple. You said that you did, but you didn't. Mm -hmm. And conversely, you might have uh, um, you. And, and I think that is true for some of the aphantasia patients uh, or aphantasia subjects. Um, aphantasia is not, it's like various different uh, neural 
uh, causes can can lead to aphantasia because aphantasia is just when you're uh, when you're saying that you don't have conscious mental imagery. At least in some cases, what what happens is that uh, you try to visualize an apple and you say that well I see no images, but there is the the cortices your your early visual cortices they work exactly the same way as as someone's early visual cortices who do who does have mental imagery so this comes that kind of the, these two things kind of come apart in both ways you can have mental imagery in the sense of early perceptual representation that's not triggered by uh, by the sensory input and you report nothing or the other way around the question I have here is you've mentioned a few times is representation and, yep. and, and perception and a lot of, there's been a lot of ink spilled on that. Mm. Um, I can't recall. I didn't look closely at the, uh, at the, um, uh, the, the notes or the bibliography at the end of, of the book, but I can't remember if you, you cite Merleau-Ponty and some of his work on perception. Obviously he's, you know, written, many 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 things on the phenomenology of perception but so three concepts here mm-hmm. how do we distinguish between or or how are they how is there crossover between perception so what it is to perceive something and what it is uh, to have a representation and how this works with mental imagery because you're you're discussing mental imagery with these kinds of you know there's a representation in the mind or there's a way in which we're perceiving something so how how do we how do we disentangle some of these things to, to kind of be by themselves or are they always kind of dependent on each other? How do we understand this kind of perception representation piece? Yeah, yeah, good. So, um, yeah, maybe that's what we should have started is just kind of basic concepts. I should say that, uh, you know, I, I grew up with Merleau-Ponty in some ways as an undergrad. I read a lot of Merleau-Ponty. This, uh, I, I'm, there's no, there's no Merleau-Ponty in the references of this book. Uh, there might have been Merleau-Ponty in references of my first book, actually, which was about perception and action. Uh, it seems Merleau-Ponty seems more relevant there. But of course, uh, like basically every thinker uh, who was so writing about perception or the mind, at some point we're talking about mental imagery. So, uh, so it's it's just one of those extremely wide appeal concepts that we, or at least those of us who are not aphantasia subject, uh, they we just seem to be uh relying on a lot and uh so um so, so that's just a, a lot a lot of literature and also in not just philosophers but obviously psychologists but also literally you know authors writers novelists mm-hmm. they also have incredibly uh, astute observations i think that marcel proust had an extremely sophisticated theory of imagination or imagery actually mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, probably much better than any philosophers mm-hmm. uh, i know so uh, how how are these concepts related? And I actually do want to go back because you talked about uh, predictive coding and priors, and that's also an, an important concept there. So the way I think about uh, the mind is that it's uh, it's basic building blocks are representations. Um, representations represent something as having a certain property. Some of these representations are going to be perceptual representations. Some others are non-perceptual representations. Uh, perception is a representational process. Uh, it's the function. What perception does is that uh, it creates a representation out of the sensory input. Hmm. And then we use this representation for various purposes. We use it for to guide action. 
we can also use it to somehow feature in our various uh, reasoning and inferences and, and justify beliefs and all that stuff. Uh, but uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer of perceptual representation. I fully realize that there are people who are not. Um, I, uh, I'm, and I'm not, this, this book was not supposed to be uh, a debate with them. I think uh, if, if, if you're really very uh, adamant that perception is not representational, then you can understand my claim about mental imagery in terms of uh, perceptual processing that is not directly triggered by sensory input. So in, in the book, actually, I go back and forth between talking about perceptual representation and perceptual processing. So I, nothing really depends on on that, on whether you know you think of the mind as representational or not. Uh, arguably, Merleau-Ponty didn't. Mm -hmm. I don't know who's to tell. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so this. So I wanted to. To, this book is not supposed to be one of those kind of inside baseball things that's, you know, there's this, this philosophy debate about, oh, is the is perception representation or not? Naive realism versus representation. <laughs> it's not supposed to be taking sides of these things because I'm interested in a phenomenon, mental imagery, or rather what I mean by mental imagery, this kind of, uh, but I think it's really important for understanding a number of mental phenomena. And if we kind of pull together the role that it plays in various different mental phenomena, then we can really make progress in understanding a number of different aspects of the mind. Um, so, um, so I'm trying to be as neutral as possible about this kind of theoretical assumptions. You, you talk about this phenomenon aspect of it. So mm -hmm. in terms of the representations there, how do you see it, I guess, from, or how, how are you seeing it in, in this way of, is it kind of in a, a subject object kind of way? And so you're, you're saying like, well, I'm the subject, here's the object. Or are you also including, you know, again, the, the whole phenomenological experience of it, or you're not even playing that game? You're oh, just I see, kind I see. Of, okay. Now I think I know, I understand where you're coming from the whole phenomenology stuff. So, uh, I, I think that I think that representation is a much more basic concept than consciousness or than phenomenology. Mm -hmm. uh, you, I mean, uh, my own view is that phenomenology or phenomenal feel when you're you know when you're looking at a uh, a um, a green leaf, then the green phenomenal feel uh, is going to somehow depend on or supervene on uh, our various perceptual representations. That's um, my view, and I don't rely on this in this book again this is not supposed to be this uh kind of um in, inside baseball stuff um but uh but i but i but i, but I do well, i do think that somehow representation is a more fundamental concept than consciousness some of our representations are conscious some others are not conscious mm -hmm. but i think you know, consciousness is an interesting question i'm not that interested in it frankly uh i'm more interested in how various mental capacities work whether or not they're conscious so mental imagery is a, is a case in point, uh, but maybe, you know, maybe let's talk about the different phenomenon, like attention. Mm -hmm. Attention is a super important phenomenon in the human mind, not just for uh, for understanding perception, but for our mental well-being. And, uh, you know, it, there's, there's more and more stuff on, about the relation between attention and addiction, for example. So it's very, it's very crucial. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I think when we're trying to understand attention, we should not try to understand uh, you know, conscious attention, and then I have a theory of that. We should understand attention, which, as we know from a lot of empirical research, can be conscious and unconscious, mm -hmm. uh, and how attention works and what it does and, and how, how that changes the way our mind operates. 
And whether or not it's conscious, it's a secondary question. Mm-hmm. And the same with mental image, the same with perception. When we try to understand perception, we should not really start with consciousness. We should try to understand what the perceptual system does. Mm-hmm. And then once we understood that, then maybe we can add the stuff about consciousness. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't, I, I don't, I don't like to start with consciousness. Consciousness is a kind of a nice last explanatory step, but mm-hmm. definitely not the first one. Yeah. So I, what, what do you make of, we can, we can dovetail in two ways here. What do you make about the role of the body in uh, mental imagery? So one connection here is you talked, we, I mentioned earlier that it's not just visual. You have all the senses there, which I would say is a, an aspect of, of the body. Yeah. And then you also talk about in the, kind of in the middle of the book about the multi-sensory and multimodal capacities of mental imagery. So we can maybe maybe tie those two together, but what do you think about those components and the role of the body if if you if you have any problems? Yeah, I, I think I begin to see what kind of direction you're coming from. <laughs> um, so I feel that the the body, I mean, I don't think anyone in the whole world in the in the entire philosophical discipline denies that the body is very important for perception or for mm-hmm. the function of the human mind in general. No? Uh, so yeah, one aspect of it is the multimodality of perception and of imagery. So uh, multimodality just means that we perceive the world via many sense modalities, so not just we just don't just see it, which might sound somewhat disembodied, but of course we touch it, mm-hmm. lick it, uh, sniff it, mm-hmm. and this is all. This all involves the body. It involves the body in various different ways. It, 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 most of it involves our various bodily actions. So vision would not be uh, possible if we did not move our eyes. Right. What makes uh, visual processing possible is that our eyes dart around with great speed. If, they, if it didn't, there wouldn't be any, any visual perception. And the less known fact, but the same is true for smell. So what with fancy terms they call olfaction, which just means smell. Uh, that, would no, that would not be olfactory perception. That would not be smell if it were not for sniffing. Mm-hmm. So, um, fun fact, uh, if you block, if you, if, if you somehow artificially you, you block uh, someone's sniff, sniffing action, then there's going to be very little olfactory perception, very little uh, actual, very little smell experience. Mm. Um, and the same is true for, for touch, right? I mean, when you're, t- you, I mean, there's different, two different kinds of touch. One is that one is the kind of touch when you, uh, you, you press a uh, quarter against my, uh, the palm of my hand, uh, and but but the other one is when I run my hand through my keyboard, mm-hmm. where the way I, the way my hand moves is very much constitutive of how the experience unfolds. So, so I think that there's you don't have to be kind of sectarian in order to to acknowledge that there are various actions that uh, that go into perception, and also that the body is clearly very uh, very important. I'm going to I'm going to say just one more thing about the importance of the body and that's not about mental imagery but about motor imagery which is very related there's actually a chapter on the book about motor imagery mm-hmm. so mental imagery is a perceptual state uh it's a perceptual state that's not quite uh that's not triggered by the input it kind of starts a little later and motor imagery is the exact opposite of that so that's a that's a motor state uh, that's something that we that comes in action uh, execution but it doesn't trigger the action and that's very clearly something that uh, that has a lot of that very heavily relies on the representation of our own body. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't really couldn't really have 
motor representation or imagining doing something if you didn't have uh if you didn't represent you know where your hands are where your uh where the object is in in relation to your hands mm-hmm. um when you when you're performing the action mm-hmm. so yeah the body is important but i should say that that's not kind of a controversial claim no one denies that the body is important Certainly, I think some people may overemphasize it. Um, right. I don't think maybe some people underemphasize it. Most people say yes, that there is there's a there's a there's a importance to it. Of course, I do think some people may overemphasize or put too many eggs in that basket. But you know that that's there's different ways of conceptualizing. So what happens when there's dysfunction or disorder with with the body and or with the mind you you talk about pain pain is super yeah. super interesting in terms of uh, pain perception and and even how it works in the brain, uh, folks that are blind, you spend some time talking there and synesthesia, which has, you know, really kind of been, a it's puzzled people for, for a while. What, what do you make when in different components, whether it's, there's a, um, a malfunction or, or disorder visually or with the senses or with pain, how do we then understand a person's capacity or ability to make accurate representations, accurate, whatever that may be, uh of what their of what's going on in their in their natural world uh good so uh, so i think there's a lot of things can go wrong in our human you know in the perceptual system and the human mind in general um because it's the human mind is very complex so a lot of things have to come together uh in order for us to have uh to perceive the world um in a way that guides our actions well something like that and each of these things that's supposed to come together can break down. So depending on that, that's going to be different issues. Um, and I do talk about a number of these things. I talk about the blind for a number of reasons. One of them is because it's kind of a little known fact that uh, the vast majority of blind people do have mental imagery. And, and I think there's a lot of really interesting and cool thing that can be done to have blind people with the help of imagery. Um, so, for example, echolocation and uh, sensory substitution. So I talk, I talk about those uh, a little bit. Um, maybe just in terms of kind of uh, um, when things go wrong, uh, I should emphasize that um, we already talked about it a lot, and and maybe I don't I don't want to go back to it too much, but maybe that's something that needs needs to be heard. Aphantasia. So there's a way in which people could construe aphantasia as a um, as a bad thing. And I think many, many people, I'm, I'm, and as you can imagine, I talk to a lot of aphantasia books. Each time I give a talk, there's going to be some aphantasia uh, subjects in the, in the, in the, in the audience. And they were like, Oh my God, I don't have, I don't have mental imagery. So uh, it should be, I think it's really important to know that aphantasia is actually a good thing. Uh, this, uh, it, this is some new studies that show that there's much less mental health issues for, uh, with people for um, aphantasia. Um, and part of the reason for that, and that's, I guess, is the main way in which I want to answer your question, is that it seems that a lot of mental health issues are very in- intimately and intricately connected to mental imagery. Mm-hmm. And not just the kind of obvious ones. So PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is clearly just mental imagery going wrong mm-hmm. but even depression depression is uh is very much reliant on the what kind of mental, mental imagery that you have not just about the future but about the past and about the present uh and and basically in all mental uh in all kinds of uh, mental health issues 
some of the most recent and most kind of hyped or most efficient ways of uh, of uh, of treating them have to do with mental imagery. Um, so um, so there's that's kind of a big boom of using mental imagery in mental health practices. Mm-hmm. EMDR is one of them. Talk about, talk about that a little bit in the book. So the eye movement um, stuff that is uh, very <clears throat> very hyped these days. Mm-hmm. And so and, and so so if you're aphantasia, you uh, your mental imagery is going to be much weaker, and you have much less of an issue with these things. Mm-hmm. Whereas hyperphantasia people, they're really very high risk. Mm-hmm. So um, so yes, it's it's difficult to to know what's what's uh, what's kind of a, so what. Is it a disorder? I mean, what kind of disorder is it? If you have aphantasia, yeah, you don't have the ability to have mental imagery. But then, on the other hand, you're going to have much less issues with mental health. So I, I don't think that you can kind of frame any of this as, as mm-hmm. disorder or as some, um, mm-hmm. some kind of abnormality. Let's talk about, I'm glad you brought up the the disorder thing. So maybe, maybe we'll fight about this. I don't, I don't know how you feel about it. but Good, yeah. Uh, this uh, is actually uh, <laughs> disagreement. I guess the... I have to, I have two I have well I have one thing I want to ask about but I, let me talk about the the PTSD and the EMDR and stuff. Huh? So I'm gonna have the somewhat unpopular opinion. So a lot of people like EMDR. They like uh-huh. EMDR for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And what my I have again I'm not an expert in this. I don't read this literature that closely. But the literature I have read, you know, the rest recent is a couple years ago was. EMDR is for 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 listeners. It's um, eye uh, rapid eye. Uh, what have to stand for uh, eye desensitization movement. Whatever it is, I forget the eye the movement word. desensitization. Yeah, and, and usually it's it's sometimes people have like a bar and they'll have like lights that go backwards and forwards horizontally. Sometimes it will be uh, another type of light. Sometimes it will be you know with your hand. There's different kinds of ways in which people do it, and I, I'm sure there's some, some something behind it, but much of the research shows that the efficacy of uh, EMDR, which started in the late 80s, early 90s, um, but the, the literature we have now with 30 years now is it's really exposure to the events that the person has in the mind. So you kind of do this uh, covert uh, desensitization, right? So you, I want oh. you, you know, someone has a, has a, has a, let's just take a you know, fear of bridges or something. And, and they say, okay, well, you know, you, you have to kind of get them there, but you start by doing a lot of mental imagery work, or sometimes if you want to, in the opposite way, you want to have them, if they get flooded or overwhelmed to have a relaxation kind of imagery, right? So this is used therapeutically in a lot, and there's a lot of really good utility there. But mm-hmm. I think the, in terms of EMDR though, uh, I think the jury's still out on the whole the rapid eye movement and the light and the movement of the hand. People don't really subscribe. Uh, critics of it don't subscribe any efficacy to that. It's mostly the imagery work that people use with exposure therapy. Um, and you know, of course, people that are really into EMDR, they'll swear by it. The the eye movements is an absolutely essential feature. And thus far, it seems that that's not the case, or at the very least, there's mixed evidence on that. I don't know if you want to get that into the weeds of it, but I guess the underlying point is that the exposure piece is important, but EMDR itself is um, the the components of the rapid eye movement is less important from what what I have read. What are, what are your thoughts, Ernest? So, uh, so I, I don't get me wrong. So I'm not like a big um, 
I don't, I don't have a business uh, model riding on the, <laughs> on the, on the, you know, success of EMDR. So I don't, I don't, you don't have I don't, any stocks in EMDR. <laughs> I don't have any stocks in EMDR. <laughs> uh, so, so, uh, and, and I feel that it's incredibly hyped, overhyped at this point. And, uh, and, and I think there's a lot of people going in there. They expect that uh, no matter what they do, they're just going to, the, their problems are going to be solved with EMDR. And that's just clearly not the case. I think uh, I can explain with the help of uh, various ongoing research on mental imagery, why it works when it works, but I can also maybe explain why it doesn't work when it does not work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and I think it's really important to, to see that it's not going to work for everyone. Mm-hmm. Nothing works for everyone. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and 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 to know what 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 it depends on whether it works or not. So maybe I should should I talk about why it works and uh, is it interesting sure. for sure? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the way uh, the way I understand EMDR work, working is is based on three big claims about mental imagery. Each of them are kind of we have independent, extremely solid evidence for. Mm. One of them is not really about imagery; it's about memory. So um, the way memory works. Is not that you have a, when you have a memory, then you uh, somehow you take it when, when you remember something, you take it out of your kind of memory storage, you contemplate it, and then you stuff it back unchanged. And the next time you remember again, they take it out, put it back. Each time you react, and, it's, and this is like this has been the, the big finding in about mem- in memory research in the last 20 years. The act of remembering changes the memory. So when you remember something, sorry. Is it is sorry? I just want to clarify. I don't want to interrupt. Is yeah. it the retrieval? The, re, the you're talking about the retrieval exactly. process, yeah. right? Exactly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. So the act, yeah, that's why I describe it as the act of remembering. So yeah, the retrieval of a memory mm-hmm. changes the memory itself. So when you kind of put it back, it's a different memory. So next time you remember it, is going to be a different memory than mm-hmm. the previously. Mm-hmm. So that's there. We have incredibly strong evidence for that. That's one, that's one thing. The other thing uh, is that it's, it's more in mental imagery land uh, is that episodic memory, when you remember something episodically, so when you remember seeing something, remember hearing something, remember touching something, mm-hmm. um, that is a form of mental imagery. Okay. Um, so the episodic, mem- there's different components of memory, obviously, but the, exactly. there's something critical about the episodic memory of it. Yeah, so I mean, memory researchers make this distinction between semantic and episodic memory. So semantic memory is when you uh, remember uh, that you had, uh, I don't know, scrambled egg for breakfast. And episodic memory is when you remember eating the scrambled egg. You remember the taste, you remember the color, uh, you remember the uh, sizzling of the of the egg. Um, so that's the big difference. And episodic memory is uh is a form of mental imagery you you don't have an episodic memory it, it's basically a form of mental imagery that has some kind of link to the past and that's the second finding so when when you're actually recalling something when when, when you're remembering something that is a way of constructing mental imagery and the third big finding is about eye movement so we talked a little bit about eye movements about how percept how visual perception relies on uh on on the eye movements and if i block your eyes are you know, with that's a very cruel procedure, but artificially block your eyes, then you're not going to see anything. Similarly, if you're visualizing something and I block your eyes, 
it's going to be either very, very, very vague or no imagery whatsoever. And when you are, and, and if I'm asking you to visualize a, uh, I don't know, visualize the Eiffel Tower, then you're going to have your eye movements are going to be such that they're going to be very similar uh, to the to the eye movements you would have if you were looking at the Eiffel Tower. So mental image, so visual imagery is as reliant on eye movements as this visual perception. Uh, and if I block your eye movement, then the vividness is going to suffer. So what EMDR does is that it doesn't block your eye movements because that's just a really painful and shitty procedure, but it forces you to have a certain kind of eye movement that's not the same as the eye movement that you would have if you were uh, actually visualizing the uh, the, the recently recalled uh, episodic memory, which is usually a traumatic event. So, um, so, so what's happening is that you take out your old memory uh, you're trying to form a mental image of, of it, but because of the eye movements, you can't. Mm-hmm. Or your mental imagery uh, that that kind of uh, that's brought up is going to be much less vivid because your eye movement is busy doing this rather than busy than enacting the actual mental image. And then when you're stuffing it back, then it's going to be a much less vivid imagery that you're stuffing back. Now, this is when this is this is the way it's supposed to work. This is the way it works when it works. It's not going to work. When uh, when you're bad, for example, at at recalling the event, mm-hmm. at least if voluntarily recalling the event, mm-hmm. um, and that that is one big huge problem for all kinds of imagery uh, related uh, psychiatric practices, um, mm-hmm. because you you know very often they they use the therapeutic imagery. They ask you to you know visualize being on a beach or something. Visualize the 10 best things that happened to you or the 10 worst things that happened to you. It's very difficult to know what that really means to do that. Mm. If I have just like one flashback, is that a, um, does that count? Or uh, what if I just say that I did? <laughs> it's like, it's, it's very difficult to control. It's very difficult to maintain mental imagery. So, so there's definitely more uh, like a room for improvement, but that's the, that's my take on, on EMDR. And I, and I think, but one of the reasons, you know, one of the nice things about doing research on these things, it's not just kind of a theoretical importance of, you know, let's try to understand what mental imagery is. Of course, it has yeah. real life applications. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's that's the real. Yes, yeah, so you're absolutely right. There's a lot of uh, applicability there. I would say that also with retrieval of memories, we're terrible at doing that, and we oh, yeah. get things mixed up. And there's a lot of state dependent memory. Uh, there, there's all of these things. And so just relying on the memory and then relying on the accuracy of the person, are they malingering? Are they over-reporting or under-reporting something? Are they accurately remembering? You know, that's why we we don't, you know, the, the false memory kind of uh, phenomenon is a huge thing. That's why we don't rely on, you know, people picking people out of a lineup when they're trying to catch a criminal because people remember. Yeah. There's all these issues with it. And then, yeah, I mean, I mean I, I, your explanation was really good. but again. The eye movement piece of it is fine, but I think most people will agree that the exposure component of it is probably what is doing it. Because if you just, I think you could probably do, like, for example, if you do exposure therapy where you don't have any of the eye movements, you can still have curative effects. Uh, EMDR is not, so the eye movement is not essential, but, you know, it's crazy. I mean, you, you were saying about how, you know, people believe in it. I mean, I've been to, trainings at big conferences where people that are big emdr trained people Mm -hmm. will say 
in one or two sessions, we pretty much cure this person of their trauma. And it's like, that's a, and this can work for everybody. I mean, right there is where, you know, this is absolute yeah, fucking that's, bullshit. That's I can, bullshit. I can totally see that it can, in, in a couple of se- sessions, you could do that. If, if, sure. if object is such that, so here's one thing that all of this kind of presupposes that the subject is going to be good at just retrieving the trauma in its mm-hmm. full shittiness and put it <laughs> in the mind's eye. Right. If you're good, if you if that if that does happen, which is actually does happen in kind of early stages of trauma, sometimes but that's also it's not for the, it depends on a lot of things about the, what your mental setup, whether you, what you do with trauma, whether you really try to hide it from yourself or not. Mm-hmm. All of these things are going to be very extremely variable, and the, any of the stuff that I talked about is only going to work if you actually manage to access this traumatic event. And create a mental imagery of it. Okay, create this episodic memory of it. And and many people are just not very good at that, or yeah, you know, for better or for worse, right? I mean, you know, yeah, or it's it's confabulated somehow, or there's a lot of confusion. Yeah, it, it's 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 not it's not. Uh, there's a lot of things in the in the mix there. And there's you know it it it, it relies on voluntary recall and. Uh, well, you know, another Proustian theme is that involuntary memories are often much stronger and much mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. Uh, much, much larger part of the mind is is accessible to involuntary memory than voluntarily, mm-hmm. you know, counting counting to three and recall your traumatic event. So mm-hmm. yeah. there's clearly a, a lot of room for improvement. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm going to come to like kind of this this metaphysical question, or or even you could say an ontological question, which is and maybe you you're not trying to do that, but is everything okay? Two questions. One. Is everything then just representations without sensory input, right? In terms of our reality of the world, and two, does it matter? Because the question you could go with that is, how do we how do we know, for example, someone that has various types of hallucinations, right? And they're not quote unquote real, but they are real to the person. They're really hearing the the stimuli. They're really seeing them. They're really feeling the stimuli, but other people in shared reality do not and or the impact and role of um uh hallucinogens people take psilocybin people take marijuana they take lsd they take maybe some aspects of mdma and you know they're having things that are representations but they're not of this shared reality so how much of the like what is and what is not real is actually an important question uh, with no altered states, whether that's an organic aspect, which in terms of psychosis, if you will, or if it's an imposed one through a substance, does that even matter? Does it does the question matter, or how do you see this? Then, uh, well, I mean, I um, I think it does matter. No, I mean, this matters for our uh, everyday life. No, it doesn't. I, I guess it matters for for cohabitating shared reality with other humans. But I mean, people have ideas about it they have different ideas about because for example right if i if i really were to explain to someone you know the 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 green leaf that you're seeing you're not actually seeing the color green because green doesn't actually really exist right telling people that is a mind fuck but you could say it is empirically true but does it matter because the reality we're saying when i look at outside and and you know and i see all of the changing of the leaves or i see the color of the flowers or but it you know it it's it's real in one sense, but it's not entirely real. They're they're representations in one aspect, 
And then if you look at other types of insects or, or animals, they have different types of vision where they have ways of seeing things that humans cannot see, such as, you know, UV rays, things like ultraviolet or, uh, or the, uh, or the uh, night vision, things like that. Things are different. And so reality looks different based on your perception and or your representation. So what can we say? Should we ask that question? Is it really real or, or does that not matter? I, I do believe in reality. Maybe it's a controversial claim, but I, I do believe in reality. <laughs> but I, I also think that that's what's important. Like, I mean, we're kind of moving away from anthropology, but this, these are kind of fun questions. So I, I think that the, we're going to access very different parts, very different aspects of uh, reality, depending on our mental capacities, depending on our perceptual system. So... Um, Different creatures, different animals. Um, they have a very they 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 will they will be sensitive to very different aspects of the reality. But I I I think it's a good idea to somehow think of uh, some kind of external world that um, we have some kind of access to. Um, because uh, yeah, I don't know. Because otherwise, it's going to be difficult to explain how come that we can, uh, you know, build bridges mm -hmm. that are going to hold, hold up and uh, we can uh, write, uh, we can um, put together computers that allow us to have a Zoom interview. <laughs> right. But, but you know, you people... Only, so you can see I'm starting with this kind of uh, solipsistic view is that, you know, it's only kind of me and my reality and that might have little to do with other people's reality. Right. It's gonna be, there's a lot of things that are going to be difficult to... Uh, to explain, um, and so I think that we can have the, the general kind of uh, intuition behind that, mm. while also acknowledging that there is some kind of mind-independent reality. As long as we're uh, we we uh, we acknowledge the differences mm. that you and I, and especially I don't know my cat and I, would they are going to, we gonna just be sensitive to a different aspect of the reality? And I actually did talk a little bit about. Uh, one way in which, uh, even within the same species, you and I might might uh, might have very different experience of, of looking at the same thing. So uh, there's this poster behind you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, really cool, um, <laughs> repeating patterns and stuff. Uh -huh. You look at it, and when I look at it, I think it's a very different experience that we have um, because you because your um, you, you because your perceptual history with this image is very different from my perceptual history with this image. So. So what do you see when you when you see it? I can explain it to viewers or listeners, but what do you see though? I see little uh, foxes, maybe, and it's a like it's an interesting uh, Galapagos. I guess not foxes, <laughs> some kind of animals. <laughs> so so uh, you know, and it's an, it 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 is a uh, it's a it's a bistable image, so you can uh, look at look at them as black. You look at the black animals, and then the white is going to be background. You can look, look at the white animals, and the black is going to be background. But I've, you know, I have my own perceptual history of looking at I don't know Escher drawings and stuff like that uh, that that are similar. You have a very different perceptual history because you looked at different pictures in your life. And one thing that you know about the perceptual system is that history matters. What I see now, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when you look at something, is heavily dependent on the things that I have seen in my previous many, many years. Mm -hmm. So um, so that's one aspect in which, you know, there's the same object out there. And I don't want to deny that there is an actual object out there. Mm -hmm. But your experience is going to be radically different from my experience. And I think that one, one nice thing about uh, 
trying to unify the empirical sciences and philosophy when it comes to perception is to try to understand why that is and how that is. So you can ex- you can explain these kind of touchy-feely things about how, you know, when you, you're looking at it, you see something different from when I'm looking at it in terms of, you know, hard facts about the perceptual system. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I would agree with that. I, I think um, the questions there are that people have these ideas that, you know, maybe there is no reality. And, and I agree with you. I think there is a reality. But I do agree that I think it's complicated. And I definitely think people have different experiences of it, even within the same reality, which I don't think is a contradiction. But I think it's just part of being, uh, you know, a complicated organism that's moving around the world and they're experiencing different things. The, um, <laughs> the, the, no, let me just let me say one more thing. It's go, not yeah, even yeah. Just two different, two different pe- people. So when you first bought this poster, your mm-hmm. experience was very different than, than it is now. Right? Certainly, and the, certainly. And that's the same person, right? The same object, same person. But given that you're, uh, you, you know, you had a different, different time slice of the same, the same person. You had a different perceptual history then than you do now with this picture, with this image. Mm-hmm. Uh, your experience will have been diff- very different. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could riff on that for a while, but I guess my, my, my summary of what I want to say on that is, I mean, I have a. I mean, the, the phenomenologists really got a good grip in me when I read them so many years ago. But for something like this, to me, I agree. I totally agree with you. I think when, I think, how do I say this? The, the phenomenological experience of being in a space or being in a type of space over time through history has a different um, experience experiential element to it than at any other point so like if you were to take the idea of a house you know a house is just a house right it's you know whatever the materials and you you coat you live in there but there's nothing there's nothing in one sense there's nothing alive in the house in one sense it's just you know walls and a ceiling and a floor and doors and handles and and yes you can put stuff in the house but i think when you have a a person, uh, you know, that or people that are in a house, there's parts of you that are in the space. You're, 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 it's a living space. And so, you know, for example, if you take about it in the opposite, if somebody comes into your home and they rummage through everything and maybe they do or they don't take anything, you feel violated. But nothing's yeah. happened to the house. Yeah, the house right. is still the same. Maybe all your stuff's still the same. But it doesn't matter. Because there's, we attach aspects of our phenomenological experience of, of residing in a space that we consider our own, but we have different ideas or rules about that. And I do think that there is a disruption of the space because of how we create it. And that has significance within ourselves of the first day you move into a house as opposed to living there after 30 years. There's okay. memories, there's experiences. That's maybe not tangible but the phenomenology is still in the space and so i i think it's sort of similar to what you're saying is absolutely yeah. absolutely but i i i am I, 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 you know and i i can see that yeah the phenomenologists they they talk about similar things but we also just have like really hard science reasons to believe that on the basis of what we know about you know top-down influences on perception you know the percept the way the perception works it depends on what kind of other mess you have in your head uh, and you have different kind of mess in your head now than when you got that picture. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh, and yeah, the perceptual learning stuff. Um, the mere exposure effect, one of my favorites, that uh, you know this phenomenon that the more you, the more you, often you're exposed to a certain kind of stimulus, the more you're going to like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very well replicated studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that stuff is going to going to going to push push you in this direction. But in general, I mean, I I, um, I feel that one thing that philosophy is really good at, and one thing that that's the reason why I'm doing philosophy really is that you can explain stuff that we really care about. Mm-hmm. And I keep on using the term touchy-feely because that's what they are, like touchy-feely things that feel like really close to our heart. And it's as lofty as it gets in terms of like very simple and hard, you know, well-studied um, empirical phenomena. I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing when you can explain something really complex in mm-hmm. terms of something really simple. So let me ask you two final questions here. Okay. Uh, you have this chapter on art at the end of the book, which I thought was really interesting, right? Could you could you expound upon that about how you see mental imagery as being kind of used within the aesthetics or or in, in art and how we understand that? I mean, you know, when I think of art, I mean, art is such a broad term, but you know, we can say fine art, or we could say in music or in, in literature, yeah. or whatever, but. How do you see the importance of mental Im- imagery in, in art, various forms of art? So, um, so I when I don't do philosophy of mind and I, and I, I write about aesthetics, I I, uh, I kind of try to divide my time evenly between the mind and the arts or aesthetics, probably because I think that aesthetics is really also about just how to try to understand how our mind works when we're listening to music or when we're uh, watching a film. Mm-hmm. I can you know the difference between a good film and a bad film i mean in in, in some very obvious ways is about how our mind works when you're watching it mm-hmm. um and so yeah and so, yeah i thought that i'm gonna do a that big like a longest chapter i think it's actually the longest chapter it's, it's supposed to be just an appendix right mm-hmm. but i think it's the longest chapter on, <laughs> on uh on the role of mental imagery in uh, in various art forms and maybe i just i mean it's just so many sources of mental imagery, especially in the visual arts. But maybe I just want to talk about, I just highlight one, and that's expectation. Mm. And expectation is a, like a, it's a huge thing in our lives in general. And expectation is, uh, is, is, is uh, extremely important in understanding perception because much of perception is really going to be uh, heavily dependent on, on expectation. So one famous example, if I'm expecting, uh, I'm, at, I'm at a pain experiment and, uh, and experimenters said that I'm gonna that they're gonna poke me with a needle at the back of my head, and I'm expecting that. But in fact, it's it's an ice cube that touches my the back of my neck. I am going to actually experience a stabbing pain of a needle. Uh, um, expectation is so important very often, and expectation is also incredibly important in in various arts and especially in music, mm. uh, where uh, where it has been. Uh, um, you know how are us expect expecting how a certain tune is going to continue is just incredibly important. Mm-hmm. So that uh, that maybe I, I would highlight that an expectation, or at least many many forms of expectation. The forms of expectation that is important in art is going to count as a form of uh, what I call temporal mental imagery mm-hmm. when you uh, when you have mental imagery of the next moment. Mm-hmm. The uh, the last question is what do you want people to really understand about mental imagery from 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 your book or even just from the conversation? But what is the thing that you really want folks to really 
kind of grab onto? Well, maybe that the seemingly very simple phenomenon that we're all familiar with uh, can really go a very long way in uh, helping us understand even the most complicated mental phenomena, right? Like decision-making or uh, desires or uh, um, or cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. or implicit bias, mm-hmm. um, all of which, all of these things have a, have a chapter in the book, have a separate chapter in the book. Uh, and uh, and so you don't you, that, that you can you can use you can rely on things that you're you're kind of familiar with from your life to understand these very complex and complicated phenomena. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, the book is called Mental Imagery: Philosophy, Psychology, and Neuroscience. Uh, where's the best places to uh, you know get in touch with you or or to to engage with you if there are any? Uh, I'm on the social me- media. Sometimes less so now than I, you know, I used to be with recent changes, <laughs> and uh, um, and yeah, you could also find my email address if you really want to. Okay, that's good. Uh, this was uh, this was so much fun. I really really enjoyed the conversation and, and thinking about all these different things. Really fun questions. Thanks a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thanks.